Welcome to Arkansas AgCast, your source for the latest news and views in Arkansas agriculture. Arkansas AgCast is produced by the Arkansas Farm Bureau Federation. Welcome to Arkansas AgCast for February 13th. I'm your host, Matt King. This week, we talked to Harrison Pittman, director of the National Ag Law Center at the University of Arkansas about legal issues in agriculture. And we learn about the importance of agriculture activism from speaker and logging industry veteran Bruce Vincent. We also hear from Ed Swaim, executive director of the Biomeda Water Management District. First, Keith Sutton caught up with National Ag Law Center director Harrison Pittman at Arkansas State's annual Agriculture Business Conference as they discuss current legal issues surrounding industrial hemp, dicamba, and other agricultural industry topics. Welcome to AgCast. I'm Keith Sutton with Arkansas Farm Bureau. Today I'm in Jonesboro at the ASU Agribusiness Conference and I'm visiting with Harrison Pittman, the director of the National Agricultural Law Center in Fayetteville. Welcome to AgCast, Harrison. Hey, thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, you're one of the main speakers up here today in front of this big group in Jonesboro for the Agribusiness Conference, and you've been, uh, you've, you've already condensed down a lot of stuff today, talking about some of the current uh, things that are going on in ag law, and we're asking you to condense it down a little bit more, <laughs> but you gave a great talk this morning in uh I'm wondering if you could kind of hit the highlights for us and let us share this on AgCast. Sure. So uh, I appreciate this opportunity, and uh, I think, you know, first of all, I'd say I want to point out Dr. Burt Greenwalt and all the great work he's done and his team over for this program in years past for uh, a really outstanding program that draws just a a great, great group of of, of our, our industry. Uh, each year and I'm really impressed with it and um, so I was honored when he asked what I speak uh, today and and frankly you know I knew that the audience would be it'd be from all parts it's not just producers and not and producers are on different commodities but a lot of your your land guys and and lenders and uh, and government officials and the like so that sometimes it's hard to define precisely what to highlight. And why, why don't you start by telling people what the National Ag Law Center is all sure. about. Okay. Just give them a, a brief uh, history of that and what, what it is. Terrific. Okay, so the National Agricultural Law Center is a unit of the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture. So we're Arkansas-based, we're part of the university system, uh, we, we're you know, key part of the land-grant aspect of our university system, but we do function as a national center, and, um, and we serve uh, stakeholders in agriculture throughout the country, and uh, all manner of producers, you know, different commodities, different sizes. Uh, we work with attorneys and non-attorneys, policymakers at the federal level, state level, and our mission is basically, and, and others, of course, but those are some primary target audiences for us, but uh, we uh, our mission is to be the nation's leading source for agricultural and food law research and information and uh, as the years go by these issues just expand and and I've been you know just at a just kind of a side note here when I entered this thing that we call agricultural law it was 2001 and the issues have just changed so much uh, and they've expanded the nature of them, uh, the dynamics that play out around it. It's just been amazing. And when I started, a lot of agricultural law I found was defined 
by issues that you would have encountered in the farm crisis of the 1980s. A lot of uh, finance and credit issues, uh, what happens with farm programs when the music stops, so to speak, uh, and you know, uh, bankruptcy, uh, dealing, you know, write downs with FSA agencies with debt. You know, there were other issues, but those were a lot of the, the body of agricultural law. That was a lot of it. And then there was a point in the early 2000s where one day I just thought, I wonder if environmental law is agricultural law now, because there's so much of it was focused on the environmental law, and that aspect alone has expanded since then. And now we're trade is such a huge part, you know, and, and in that time period, going, looking back, you know, in the mid-90s, the first convention or first GMO crops were commercialized. And so now, just look at the issues that have evolved there, uh, both domestically and then with our trading partners around the world. Uh, and so it's a, uh, it's a, it's a, I'm blessed to be able to work in this arena and work in the way that I do with so many stakeholders. You have to constantly learn in order to be useful. And so uh, a lot of the things that are important to people, I have to learn it real, you know, as quickly as I can and keep up with changes. And, uh, and so today was a great opportunity to highlight some of the issues that we've dealt with in, uh, in, in recent weeks and months and, and things that I think, you know, uh, on the horizon for agriculture. And you picked some good ones. I mean, uh, I think all of these do affect Arkansas folks in some way or another. Why don't you uh, just give us some highlights from your talk today? Sure. I wish everybody could have been here to hear the whole thing. There's a lot of people uh, in there. there there's Enough a to big make you crowd nervous. today. <laughs> but we want the ones who can't be here for one yeah. reason or another to hear a little bit about what you said. So well, kind of hit the high points. And I'll point out to the listeners, it's raining up here today. So the audience swelled a little bit. People can't get out in the field and work today. And, uh, and I was, I traveled over from the hotel, just uh, and Secretary West Ward hopped in the truck with me. When we got here, I said, there's a lot of people. He said, I sure hope you're ready. <laughs> but, <laughs> you were ready. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. So uh, the, one of the main issues that, and this is true in Arkansas and other states, that it's just been red hot is industrial hemp. And, uh, and you know, so when people hear that, uh, that term industrial hemp, I think they, and it's not, it's not a, a bad way to think about it, but they almost always think producer, thinking someone to grow hemp. And in the world that I'm, I'm in, I'm dealing with people who, they don't really have a background in ag. There, a lot of them are investors, they're lenders, they're looking to invest or loan money to somebody and they want to know, you know, sort of what is the risk or what's the law, what, what's out that I can get burned on. Uh, and uh, some of them are the policy makers trying to help at the state level and at the federal level, trying to help write rules. Um, and, uh, you know, so again, I, I kind of take this back and tie it in with the Ag Law Center in that national uh, manner in which we serve. If you go to our website right now, we have a part of our website is devoted entirely to legal issues and industrial hemp, including a map you can click on and you can get every state's law. Uh, that uh, that they've enacted, and there's now 46 or 47 states. You know, there's only two or three left, and I think they're about to, to move in that direction. Uh, that don't have a state law in allowing for industrial hemp production. So it's a huge issue uh, that brings in the USDA, it brings in state departments of agriculture, it brings in the Food and Drug Administration, it brings in less than it used to, but it still brings in the Drug Enforcement Administration. And so there's a lot of government interaction there. There's a lot of things that can go right. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. 
And, uh, there are some of our farmers who are sort of tiptoeing into this mm -hmm. and starting to raise hemp. Uh, so I guess they're going to have to be uh, kind of careful and, and watch what's going on to be successful. I definitely would. And, um, you know, if I was a person looking to produce, particularly to be the producer, I would actually think through... Uh, you know, the old analogy would be a country lawyer that thinks about their closing argument before they make their opening argument. Uh, I would think about the end at the beginning if you're producing hemp. Think about, you know, because producers are accustomed to, you know, in commodity production, especially row crop, they're accustomed to you, you plant, you grow, you harvest, you haul, you dump, and then the money starts sorting out after that. Well, there's not that equivalent of a grain elevator, and there's not the equivalent of all the federal uh, uh, decades and decades of, of infrastructure and federal policy to help support. Uh, and that's a very, you know, we're just at the, the, the tip of, of trying to get, you know, crop insurance, for example, and when it might apply and when it might not apply, and what's even available for hemp products. So I think one of the key issues for a producer would be, if I was in their shoes, and, and I've asked this when anybody's approached me, I'd say, Where's your market? You know, do you have a contract? And what does that contract say? Because this, it's not necessarily I'll grow it and they will come. Uh, and there's some people that, who have walked into that trap. Uh, and uh, and you know there was an auction I think it was in Tennessee a month or so ago. Uh, they got down to an auction with him, and I think the participants there were pretty disappointed based on the news reports uh, as as to what panned out there. And so uh, you had a question. Well, a good place to start would be to go to your website. Let's tell everybody yeah. how to find that so they'll, they'll be able to. I guess there's, there's different ways to find this. Our, 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 our domain address is nationalaglawcenter.org. Now, if you're like me, you just go to Google and you type in <laughs> National Ag Law and you click, it'll get you there. But we're also on Facebook and uh, National Ag Law Center on Facebook and on Twitter. And we are on LinkedIn. If anybody, you know, go that route, and I'm not on. Uh, there's another one of these social media services that I don't use, but we do use, and I can't remember what it is. We have a communications person that keeps that information going. Well, for I'm us. sure we got a lot of listeners who know <laughs> all about social media. They'll find you. Yeah. So what what's another issue that you brought up today that pertains particularly to Arkansas folks? Um, well. In a way, they all do. I think uh, the the pesticide issues that are mentioned, uh, you know, you know, modern production agriculture. It's a you you have to have these crop protection products in order to be productive, and you can't be successful without being productive. So, uh, it, it, it in one breath, it seems so far away, you know, that these are decisions made by the big companies, and you got lawsuits, and you got a regulatory process at the federal level and state level. But at the end of the day, it's all geared towards the outcome is to have this product available for crop protection that you help make you successful. Uh, and that, uh, so in that system right now, there's, and I just touched on some of the, some of the bigger issues that are playing now. Let, let's go ahead and use the D word. Okay. And let's talk a little about, you did talk yeah. about dicamba. Did and there's dicamba. some big issues yeah. there, and they do pertain yeah. here. Yeah, so uh, one of them, this would be one that's kind of far away, but is relevant in Arkansas. Uh, there's an ongoing lawsuit before the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, which is in the western United States, uh, that is... Uh, 
it's brought by primary plaintiff is I think that is National uh, Farm Family uh, Coalition and um, and what they're seeking to do is to uh, they want to force uh, uh, the EPA to revoke its registration of dicamba altogether and what so here's what that means the federal law that governs pesticide registration and marketing in the United States and herbicide is called the Federal Insecticide Fungicide Rodenticide Act, FIFRA is the acronym. And under that scheme, like a lot of other federal laws, there's a federal-state relationship. And so at the federal level, the Environmental Protection Agency is charged with the initial approval pro approving it. So there's a process that goes data collection and testing and, uh, and all kinds of things, and there's a whole complicated system that rotates around that. But once that product and the label is approved, then it's open to states to the states to approve it. Okay, and states, and this is general, uh, just kind of legal principles 101. States can't expand what the federal government did, but they can restrict. And this is an area where that's also true. And so states like Arkansas and others have changed the labeling uh, that was approved by EPA uh, for that product using its state. Uh, and so with this Ninth Circuit opinion, it, it would go back to that original approval process. And if they are successful, it would you would remove dicamba. Uh, I mean, if they're successful in, in their definition of success, they'd essentially remove dicamba from the marketplace altogether. Uh, but this is a little bit down the line. Where this isn't something going to happen this month or next, probably. Um, I doubt it. I doubt it would happen like that. Um, and. Um, you know, I'm sure there's some Shakespearean phrase about the cup in the mouth that applies <laughs> here, but there's a lot of process, right. and uh, and you know, and things sometimes things move fastest when they're moving slow. Right. And, and so right. I doubt that it would happen really quickly, but I you know I can't say for sure that you know in three or four months the Ninth Circuit couldn't rule in in, in some way, uh, one way or the other that could have an impact on what the EPA does. So we all got to just keep our eye on it and see what happens. Yeah, and that's one of the, you know, and then there's, there's yeah, you were, you talked about several other yeah the next uh, products one, as well for yeah and well and then with respect to dicamba the case to watch right now is the Bader Farms oh, case yes, in Missouri. Oh yes, yes. Uh, Mr. Bader's a peach farmer there, peach orchard, and he has a row crop operation too, but uh, but the case about his peach trees, peach orchards, and he he's. He's claiming that he has uh, very, very significant economic commercial losses uh, attributed to, uh, he alleges is attributed to dicamba damage. And uh, his, his lawsuits evolved uh, since basically in the beginning, the first part of this would be uh, where he had EPA or the, the seed, the dicamba resistant seed was approved, but not the accompanying uh, herbicide. And so, uh, He's alleging that that created an environment. One of his allegations has been that that environment uh, created a situation where Monsanto should have known it was foreseeable that if they were to release these seeds that there would be producers who would plant them and then use a generic form of dicamba, thereby causing this damage. Since then, he's amended his complaint to bring in another defendant, and it's more of a challenge to the, the product itself and has some, you know, some interesting claims with it. The other body litigation that will start later this year uh, is, is known as Andre Dicamba herbicides, and it's it's consolidating hundreds of plaintiffs uh, from eight states who filed various legal actions. Some were here in Arkansas, and they're all consolidated into the St. Louis, Missouri court. And uh, 
the interrelationship between the ongoing Bader case and that one is pretty close. So what happens with Bader will, will have, uh, it'll give us some, a lot of knowledge about what could happen with respect to this other litigation. So with the Bader case, we're really just waiting now for a ruling to, to find out. That's right. Yeah, they and they had, uh, you know, a week or so, a week or two of, of testimony. Um, and uh, and for for listeners that are interested in it, you you can go. There's some pretty good news stories. Their correspondents are in that courtroom. They're they're quoting witnesses and uh, and they they do generally a pretty good job of kind of describing both parties you know, arguments, uh, you know, and so if people want to learn more on that, I will also say for those who are interested, uh, on the National Ag Law Center website, we're doing, we have a, it's a multi-part series that we published the first two parts, I think today with the third, part three will go up, and it's all about dicamba and the litigation, so if somebody wants to take a deeper dive, Bridget Rollins is our staff attorney who focuses on environmental law. And uh, she does an excellent job, and it's and it's you know it's not opinionated; it's just explanatory of if you really want. It's like, well, here's all the, these claims. You know, what are they actually arguing? You can go in and read that, and uh, and you know we have uh, they'll trace all these cases: Bader, the the various dicamba litigants, the federal. There's a Lanham Act case issue in there, and then the state law claims in Arkansas about the constitutionality of the state plant board. Uh, that'll be. Uh, addressed in there too. So that's a great resource if somebody wants to take a deeper dive on it. Well, and uh, we're going to have to let our listeners take a deeper dive that yeah. way. It's time to let you get back to this uh, agribusiness conference. We appreciate you taking a little bit of time to talk about some of these. I think what we're going to have to do, Harrison, we need to have another get-together and we'll talk about some of the other sure. issues maybe in a future issue of uh, AgCast. There's a whole bunch of them and uh, and, and if we, I'd be glad to do that. And, and I think uh, it'd be good. Some of the other center staff that they have expertise in a lot of these areas too. That uh, would be, uh, you know, very. Good. We have a lot of talented people. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm the one that brings the operation down. The other, they, they make it work, and they they're the brains of the bunch. And uh, and uh, you know, I would say to your listeners on any kind of ag issue, uh, I would if you regardless of your background and where you're coming from, uh, it may sound arrogant. I'm not meaning to sound arrogant, but it's probably worth calling us and, uh, because if we don't have an experience with the issue, we know people who do. And, um, and we go to a lot of meetings, we meet a lot of people, and we know a lot of on-the-ground information. Uh, and we do that to kind of help us with our mission too. Help well, us be hopefully by doing this today, the people out there listening will have a better understanding of the National Agricultural Law Center. They'll know they're there to help. And uh, we'll talk some more in the future and, and uh, keep these issues out there where people will know what's happening out there Love in the world of law. Thank you, right. Harrison. Thank you. I appreciate you very much and what you do with Arkansas Farm Bureau. Thank you very much. All right. Now, Kenmore talks to Bruce Vincent. Vincent, who grew up in a logging business in Montana, has been traveling across the country showing how farmers and ranchers are true environmentalists and caretakers of the land and how they need to become activists and speak out in defense of their industry. I'm Ken Moore, and on this edition of Arkansas AgCast, I'm down at the Arkansas Farm Bureau Young Farmers and Ranchers Conference in Hot Springs. And this morning, we have heard from one of our keynote speakers, Mr. Bruce Vincent, and Bruce is a third-generation logger from Libby, Montana. Now, Bruce, thank you for being with us again, uh, coming back and speaking to our young farmers and ranchers today. I think your message really resonated with them. Your message was entitled, 
with vision there is hope. Explain how you came to that as the uh, theme of your message and, and, and why with vision there is hope for agriculture. Well, when, when things started going south for the timber companies, the timber communities in the west with the spotted owl and other things back in the late 80s and 90s, we started fighting against that because it made us mad. And people were lying about who we were and what we did. So we, we fought. We had rallies. We had convoys. We, and I was leading them. I was the guy with the bullhorn and in the lead truck until we figured out that we were the third ring of a three-ring circus and somebody else was taking the gate receipts. We, we thought we were up against a, a social movement that was just misinformed and we needed to tell the public the truth. What we were up against was an industry that was completely built on conflict and selling fear and crisis. And we were part of their business plan. We helped make money for the groups like the Audubon, who they got to ask America if they wanted the marching loggers to whack all the trees down, or did they want to send them 20 bucks and they'd save the forest. So we finally backed up and figured out we, we were fighting, and we were pretty good at that, but we sucked at leading we needed to figure out how to lead the environmental discussion. And that's what I talked about this morning. There is a difference between fighting and leading. And what we need to do for the environmental movement is become a leader of it. Outgreen the people that are posing as environmentalists. Be the true environmentalist. Be proud of it. Lead the discussion on how we can provide for humanity and protect their environment. Now, you've been bringing this message to audiences, I know, for many, many years now, but uh, are you seeing a change? Are you seeing people become more active? And, and I know you just led a workshop on activism, and that's part of your message. We must become more vocal. Are you seeing uh, your audiences uh, buy into that? I am, and not just the choir. I, I do a lot of audiences with farmers and ranchers and miners and loggers and people in rural America, and uh, there are tools available now for leading the discussion that weren't available 30 years ago, and particularly for farmers. I'm a member of the Montana Farm Bureau. I'm not a farmer. I'm 100 miles from a farm, but the Farm Bureau nationwide is the, the greatest rural grassroots movement that exists. It can, the Farm Bureau now has a capacity to give us the tools we need to advocate for our culture at home. We just have to engage those tools. And I see people nationwide doing that. I, it, it's part of the reason we have the president that we have right now. We've got to help him find answers for us, but we're learning how to engage in the process, and we're learning how to lead the discussion on the environment. And I see the public ready to listen to us. used to be I mainly did the choir, but I've keynoted the American Banking Association's annual meeting the municipalities of Arizona led by Phoenix and Tucson and the Chamber of Commerce of Las Vegas, they want to know what's happening from the ground. They want to hear from a person they can trust. And that's a door that's open to, to rural America. We just have to walk through it. If we do, the rest of America is tired of the doom and gloom, bongo drum beating, incense burning, planet is dying crap that they've been getting for their entire life. They're tired of being told there's no hope. They're ready for a vision of hope. And that's that's our door. Now, you've, your business has been in the timber industry, the logging industry in Montana, and, and you shared, kind of reiterate, if you will, kind of the challenges you face back home. You still continue to face, but 
you're confident you will see a new day. Well, yeah, when we first learned that the public wanted to save the forest, we thought, kismet, good idea, so do we. The a healthy forest is what maintains our future. So we thought we had common ground with the public. Their version of saving the forest, though, is stopping all management. So we had a, we ran into a brick wall, and we had to back up and talk to the public about, what do you want? And our common ground was they wanted a healthy forest. So we had to paint that picture with them and then decide how are we going to get to healthy in the West, that means removing some of the fuel before the fires come in. And we were successful in finally listening to the public and uh, actually hearing them. They wanted a healthy forest. That was our common ground. And we helped craft a solution called the Healthy Forest Initiative, the most progressive forest language since Teddy Roosevelt. And George Bush signed it into law before he left Congress or before he left the presidency. We're now incrementally implementing that on public land nationwide, and it's the crack in our door. Uh, it, the public is understanding we need to do something besides burn 10 million acres up every year. And so the Healthy Forest Initiative is slowly being implemented. Vincent Logging bought a timber sale or logging for the first time in 15 years this year. So the public is ready, and we learned a lot during that process. The the reason I'm here at Young Farmer and Rancher is the Healthy Forest Initiative, listening to the public, finding common ground, leading the discussion on a healthy forest is the light at the end of our tunnel. That light's a train coming at the rest of rural America. And it's a train because the conflict industry we were fighting with needs a new pinata. Save the forest, whack, 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 it made them billions. Now they need a new pinata, and it's been clear to me that the next pinata is going to be anything that has to do with water and anything that has to do with animals. They're going to try to make their money by turning the public on anything that uses water or manages animals, and that's agriculture in the crosshairs. As an organization and within the American Farm Bureau, throughout agriculture, we have been, as you probably know, dealing with the waters of the U.S. You know, rule that EPA came out with a number of years ago, just this year, President Trump has signed in Congress, you know, the EPA, the current EPA, has uh, rewritten that rule so it's not so onerous for private landowners and farmers and ranchers. So we just can't, you know, get tired of preaching this message, can we? No, it's never going never gonna to end, and it never can end, because sustainability, which is what's going to sustain our farms in places like Arkansas, is sustainable agriculture, doing it, providing for humankind today without compromising the next generation's ability to do the same. But it's not a destination. We're never going to land there and say, good, we're good. It's a pathway. And we're going to have to walk that pathway with the ever-increasing population of the public that has no idea who we are and what we do. And they don't even know they need to build a bridge to us. So we've got to build bridges to them, listen to them, talk to them about their concerns, and become part of the answer to what they think problems are. When we do that, then our license to operate will be given by the public. They'll let us do it. But we've got to be the ones to do the building. They don't even know they need a bridge. Wow. And you got to speak their language, don't you? I think that was part of your address as well. Yeah, we, we can't throw white papers at them. They don't want to talk about parts per million and basal area per acre. 
They want to have a discussion in terms that they understand. And then we need to watch our language. In the timber industry, when things were going south, we called them tree-hugging hippies and environmental wackos. And that doesn't do us any favors because the public has invested their interest in these groups to watch out over their environment. And if we call them wackos because they're concerned about the environment and then ask the public to lead the movement, uh, we're in a, in a bad place right out of the gate. What we need to do is become the environmental leaders. Don't call them names. Watch our language. Be proud to be green. Outgreen the posers. Uh, every day is Earth Day for a farmer. Be proud of it. And then we can have a, engage in a dialogue with the public that's concerned about the environment. But if they think we're anti-environmentalists, they shouldn't endorse us. We should be the environmental stewards. So that, we learned that the hard way in timber. So how long are you going to continue to travel and, and share this message with America? Oh, I, as long as God, it's my mission. <laughs> and we have family meetings and pray about it. And as long as this is the pathway I'm supposed to be on, that's a pathway I'm on. I don't know. Well, I remember hearing you about 20 years ago. We were talking outside just a little bit ago when you came to speak with our audience, uh, and it's been about 20 years, Bruce, And uh, but we're glad you came back, that we had you back to speak uh, to us today. Best of luck to you and your family up there in Libby, Montana, and uh, don't stop sharing this message. We all need to hear it. Thank you, and thank you for being here at the Young Farmer and Rancher. These guys, they give me hope for my grandkids. When I came here before, I didn't have grandkids. Now I've got 14 of them. And if they want to take the flag of the next generation of rural resource producer, they're not going to do it with the social class head trip. I'm going to hand our heritage off proudly. And that's, that's what I see in that room that I just got out of. There's a bunch of young farmers and ranchers in Arkansas that are going to proudly carry the flag. They give me hope. So thanks to the Farm Bureau for doing it. Anyway, for our listeners on this edition of AgCast to uh, learn more about what you're sharing, and uh, do you have a web address or something you can share? I, they can go to uh, environomics.com. I started a consulting company called Environomics. Okay. They can look it up. Uh, I also have a book okay. called Against the Odds, A Path Forward for Rural America, Great. and it's on Amazon. Okay. Well, Bruce, hopefully they uh, can find that book on Amazon and, uh, and find that web address and uh, learn more about uh, what Bruce Vincent's all about and why this cause is so important. Thank you again for being with us. We've been talking to Mr. Bruce Vincent of Libby, Montana, uh, guest speaker at this year's Young Farmer and Rancher Conference on this edition of Arkansas AgCast. Finally, Ken Moore talks to Ed Swain, the Executive Director of the Biomeda Water Management District, to get an update on the project and learn when Swain hopes the pumping stations will finally be able to deliver Arkansas River water to subscribers. On this edition of Arkansas AgCast, I'm visiting with Mr. Ed Swaim. Ed is the Executive Director of the Biomedo Water Management District. And we're going to be talking about the Biomedo Water Management Project. Uh, Ed, we've covered this in the past with you, but it's been several years since we even reported on it. So for the benefit of our listeners to this edition of Arkansas AgCast, please kind of give a history of the project uh, why it is needed, and, uh, you know, when it all began. Well, I've been working on it full-time for about 10 months since I left the Arkansas Natural Resources Commission. The commission 
was called the Arkansas Soil and Water Conservation Commission for many years, and it was and still is the non-federal sponsor for the project. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers through the Memphis District is the primary federal partner on the project, and it is doing a lot of the construction, bringing a lot of the finances for it. But the state is involved and the district is involved, uh, the Biomeda district, to put in the non-federal share and do a lot of the legwork and then eventually to operate the project. So what the situation is, is that after we started to irrigate primarily rice in the early 1900s, it didn't take very long. It took into about the 1920s before people realized that each spring... When they had expected the water levels to return to normal from the previous year, they were not seeing a complete rebound in their alluvial aquifer wells. Every year they would see that amount go down a little bit. The United States Geological Survey started studying the groundwater levels in the Grand Prairie around Arkansas County, centered in that area, and started mapping the loss of capacity in the alluvial aquifer. By the 30s and 40s, it was very clear that people could pump more water out than Mother Nature would put in year to year. So we saw a steady decline in the alluvial aquifer. In the late 40s, our project, the Biomeda Project, and the Grand Prairie Project sometimes called the White River Project, were conceived as one project to bring water from the Arkansas River and the White River through canals and pipes to farms in the greater Grand Prairie area and supplement groundwater use so that we would reach a balance of drawing water out of the ground and drawing water from these large surface sources so that the aquifers would stay sustainable indefinitely. And that's been a goal for a very long time. In 1950, we were authorized to build the projects as one project, really kind of together. And when the Congress approved that in 1950, we didn't get any money to build them. So for many years, those projects were just on the drawing board. Then in the 90s, the projects were reauthorized, White River and Grand Prairie, uh, excuse me, uh, White River slash Grand Prairie and Biomeda. The Biomeda project didn't get any money, but uh, the White River project did, and it started some construction in the late 1990s. So we move forward to 2009 when the federal government wanted to restart the economy after the recession, and a lot of money came to the Biomeda project. All told, it was about $40 million of state and federal investment, and two pumping plants were built, one at Scott, Arkansas, on the Arkansas River, to pull water out of the river and move it into a distribution system. Then at the lower end, way down in Raydale, 49 miles from the Scott pumping station, we have another pumping station that is built to pull water out of the system through Little Biomeda, and that will relieve flooding in that area and also reduce the amount of water that stays on the Biomeda Wildlife Management Area. 
So we have these two pump stations, 49 miles apart, and we're working on building the distribution system between the two pump stations. Right now we have a little bit of canal built from the main pump station at Scott, and a bridge is being built on Colonel Maynard Road. So if anybody's out in that area, they'll see a large crane set up there to build that bridge. That canal is going to move east over Highway 161, where another bridge will be built. Then Highway 165, again, another bridge will go there. And there's currently construction from Highway 165 over near Marlsgate Plantation, where that main canal is continuing to be built. Right now, the federal money will only get us as far as Marlsgate. We have a few more miles to go to get to Indian Bow. Indian Bow runs through the project area south and then runs into a series of other bows before it goes back into the Arkansas River. So what the plan is, if we were able to get enough federal money to get to Indian Bow, then also federal money to do the clean-out of the bow because in a lot of places it's clogged or it wouldn't allow the water to flow freely. And also we would have some water that would back up and flood people if we don't get the channel of the bow cleaned out. Then we also need to build the distribution pipelines to farms. And that's an area where we've worked extensively with the Natural Resources Conservation Service. They have, of course, EQIP and other programs that help landowners build systems, but they also have some watershed programs and some regional conservation programs that can be used to cost-share public projects as well. So we're working with NRCS to build some of those pipelines at the appropriate time. So kind of where we are is we have our pumping plants, we have part of a canal, and we're seeking enough federal money to make it work. Now, the federal government is not paying 100% of the project at all. The breakdown works out to 65% federal money that would come into the project. Then the other 35% is put up by the non-federal sponsor. Now, that is the state of Arkansas at this time, but our district, the Biomeda district, borrows a good portion of that 35% through the state's lending program, and we'll pay that back when we're operational. So the state has put in some of that as grant, but the district is borrowing approximately 25% of the total cost of the project. So all this has to come together, the federal money, the district's ability to borrow money, and the state's ability to lend the money to make this work. In the meantime, we have severe groundwater overdrafts in our project area as the White River Project has in it. After you get a little bit past where our construction will end, the depth to water starts to drop off. And more important than just depth to water is the saturated thickness of that alluvial aquifer. That aquifer is like a, uh, if you go to Sonic and get a Route 44 drink, you know, it's packed with ice. And that you think of that ice as the aquifer. So there's gravel and sand under the ground and water in between those those rocks and those grains of sand. And as you draw that drink down, when you get to the bottom, there's no more drink. And you say, wow, this was all ice. Well, what we want to do is we want to hold that drink cup at half full. So 
if we can find that balance between surface water and groundwater use, then we'll have an indefinite source of groundwater to meet our needs. But if we pull it down too far, then it gets more expensive to pump water. It also causes you to have to drill deeper and otherwise makes it more unpredictable year to year whether you'll have sufficient water to irrigate. We're trying to race those environmental problems with construction. That's kind of an overview of where we are. Thank you for that detailed explanation of where we are. Uh, but just clarify for me again, you, you continue to talk about the need to pump water from and through the aquifers underground. But once this uh, these pumping stations are online and, and the uh, project is complete, aren't you going to take away the pressure from those aquifers? And isn't the majority of the water going to be delivered from the Arkansas River? What we want to do is have a kind of a breakdown between the ways that we reach that sustainable yield level on the aquifer. We know from those year-to-year measurements you know, what the rate is that the aquifer can supply. So the project is designed not to replace all groundwater use at all. The way I can, can most simplify it is if we can deliver a foot of water to a field and that farm can also still get groundwater and then they can also put in any kind of conservation measure possible from computerized pipe hole selection to reservoirs, tailwater recovery, etc., then that combination of sustainable groundwater use, the delivered water, and then on-farm conservation will let us balance out all of these water uses so that we use conservation, surface water, and groundwater kind of together to make sure that we have that groundwater source for the future. All right. Well, talk about, if you will, uh, where we are. You've had many public meetings over the last 10 years or so with local area farmers who will potentially benefit from this project. Uh, Talk about how you're going to have to have them buy into it. So just talk about uh, the support you have from the local farming community. Well, first of all, we formed the district. Well, it was formed back in 1991, and that was done by petition of landowners within the district. So we know that, that the concept had support you know, all those years ago, nearly 30 years ago. Then in the early 2000s, part of the project area, really where the irrigation benefit will be, about 300,000 acres of farmland is now in an area that pays a tax each year to the district. And we use that money for operations and to support these construction projects to maintain those pump stations. So the the people in the district are already making a direct investment in the project. As we go forward, the key to the whole thing working financially is that we are able to provide the water at a reasonable price. So we do not want to make it more expensive to get our water than it is to continue to pump groundwater at the rates that are being pumped right now. So our target number right now, just as a, as a rough rule of thumb, is about $50 net cost per acre foot of water that we want to achieve. Now, this is not all a fee that would be charged for delivered water. Part of that would be from the assessment that uh, people who have the water available to them would pay on their property taxes. So it would be a combination of the assessment 
plus a fee for actual water pump. And if that were in about the $50 range, we think that people would be able to make a good business decision to mix in our surface water as a big part of what they use to irrigate with and reduce their groundwater pumping. Kind of talk about where we go from here right now, Ed, and uh, how soon you hope, it's been a long time coming, but uh, you hope that these pump stations are online and you can start delivery of water to these farmers. What we hope is that, and what we've talked to the Corps of Engineers about, is a phased plan so that we can get to about 100,000 acres. Our total delivery area where we, once this is fully built out, will be about 300,000 irrigated acres. But we have those idle pump stations. And what we need to do is get over a threshold amount of acreage so that we would have enough money to borrow enough to make that non-federal match and also to make sure that we have enough operation money coming in to pay the electrical bill, to do the maintenance, and to operate the system in general. So that 100,000-acre piece that we could do as a first phase, we believe we could do by the year 2026. Now, the problem with all of this is the federal money that we request just about every year for a long, long time comes out of a $40 million pot of money that the Corps of Engineers has for the whole Mississippi River area. So everybody who is trying to repair something, work on a levy, do other things, is also competing for that $40 million of money each year. And what we're seeking probably in the, in the, to succeed with this would be what they call supplemental money. So we would ask the Congress to create a source of money federally to meet the federal cost share that's outside of that $40 million amount that we have to compete for each year. Now, we're also, our district has hired Garver engineers in North Little Rock to look at the whole plan that the Corps of Engineers has and see where the cost can be reduced. Garver talked to NRCS. NRCS explains, you know, we use plastic irrigation pipe. We do it a whole lot cheaper than the Corps of Engineers, and it works. So that's an area of what we call value engineering. Can we show the Corps of Engineers or can we build something on our own as a component of the project that would be a lot cheaper than the way the Corps would do it? So that's an area where we're trying to reduce the overall cost. Then if we can get that cost down far enough and come up with a way to kind of get ahead of the federal government on the financing end and go ahead and borrow enough money to do the construction, we may be able to construct a lot of this with state and local money that uh, would eventually be matched by federal money, but we would not have to wait on the federal government to come up with that 65% cost share on the front end. And that's a, a goal we're exploring right now to see if we can make that work. Well, let's hope you can. <laughs> and uh, so for the benefit of uh, myself and our listeners, again, this project has not just been sitting dormant uh, for the last four to five years. I mean, work has been ongoing to build these canals, build the new bridges you're talking about, do the infrastructure. That's kind of been ongoing year to year, I guess. You say $40 million has already been invested. Uh, how much more will we need? And I know our congressional delegation is very supportive and has been through the years to see what they can do to make sure this funding comes through. 
Sure, and and that forty million is just for those pumping plants, all told, and, and total investment in it has been about one hundred and eleven million dollars from the federal government and forty nine million dollars from state and local wow. sources. So we're at one hundred and sixty million dollars investment in the project so far. A lot of that has gone into planning and design because, as you can imagine, something this massive has a whole lot of environmental clearances and surveying and all kinds of hydraulic modeling that has to be done. So a lot of a lot of the expense has been there, and we haven't, you know, it's not apparent on the ground with with uh, yes. dirt being moved. Sure. But uh, you know, we we would hope that for another hundred million we could turn the pumps on. And we're a long way from a plan that makes that happen. But that that's been one of our goals for about a year is to try to try to zero in on what we could build for a hundred million dollars and get the pumps both of them turned on. Well we've got a wonderful resource in the Arkansas River that uh we can draw from and with all the excessive rainfall i think we've had the last several years we're not worried about the uh, river levels in the arkansas going down or really even on the white hopefully for that uh, white river irrigation project uh over there i believe where the pump station is at a deval's bluff and that's a companion project that also needs to see uh its completion uh down the road but uh Let's just hope that we can continue to keep up with you and uh, the project and that you can keep us informed uh, about the progress going forward. All right. Well, I appreciate your interest, and we'll be glad to take anybody out to the pump station anytime, show them around, and talk to anybody about questions they may have about the project. Thank you, Ed. We'll look forward to doing that with you, certainly. We've been speaking with Mr. Ed Swain, the Executive Director of the Balmito water management district that uh, is well underway and we hope one day we can report right here on arkansas agcast that uh, they're going to have a, a ribbon cutting and a uh, a big celebration when they turn on those pumps a few years down the road thank you ed for your time thank you that's all for this week arkansas agcast will be back next thursday with more stories and news from the state's largest industry